You're listening to the 2023 Central Texas Men's Conference. Learn more at centraltexasmc.com. Here's Peter Reed. Good evening. Y'all fixing to have some ice cream tonight? Did I say that right? I'm trying. On my program, this ends at 9.45 this evening. (laughs) That's a dangerous thing to have on the program when I get up here at 10 after 8. No worries. You know, when I sit around the table, I share from your lives here. I'm saying to myself, you're the message I'm trying to preach. And it's just so refreshing and so encouraging to be here. There's a book back on the table and it's entitled The Saving Life of Christ that was written by Major Ian Thomas, the founder of Torchbearers. Major was a father in the faith to me. And it was the biblical truth, this book, that changed my understanding of the essence of the Christian life and turned it into something that was life-giving, uh, that was exciting, uh, that was full of challenges, and yet at the same time, the sufficiency of Christ to meet them. And it was through his ministry that I learned that Christ didn't just die for me, but he came to live in me. And we talk about the substitutionary death of Christ. We don't talk enough about the substitutionary life of Christ. He came to live in my place. He came to do in me what I can't do myself. And uh, that spells out truth. I'm in some type of electrical black hole up here when I move. So I don't, if there's somebody marked, or I, I don't know what to do, but... I'll just keep on moving. Well, we're going to look this evening at uh, Joshua 7 and 8. Thank you. <laughs> Let's try the red one. Oh, 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 don't die. That's great. We'll try this one. Before I um, head into these two chapters, let me read a verse that I brought in the power this evening. Out of Romans chapter 15 and verse 4, and every time we go to the Old Testament, this is the verse that I like to look at before I read it. And it says, therefore, whatever was written in earlier times was written for our so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And you know, the Bible is written in such a way that God does not shield us from the failings of some of his dearest servants in the Bible. For me, this makes the scriptures uh, more believable. Because nobody would have written the things that are contained in Scripture in order to give the impression possible. And yet God saw fit to be very honest about the failings of some of his people. What's very interesting as well is that some of the deepest failures of God's saints in the Scriptures 
came in the second half of their lives. Second half. And that was certainly the case with Moses, with Abraham, with David. And that tells me that age, title, and experience are no guarantee against failure. And life in Christ is always a by-step option. And when I become a Christian and I receive Christ, I don't become Jesus Christ. I receive his presence by his spirit in my, into my being, and I live with the potential to win this pulpit this evening and afterwards commit the vilest sin known to man. That capacity is there. And as long as we know that and are aware of that, that's a blessing. We're never immune to sin. Alan Redpath, who was the former pastor of Moody Memorial Church, went to Charlotte Baptist Chapel in Edinburgh and then moved on to the property at Cape and Ray Hall in England in Jaffa of Tortspares. He said this. He said, God does not make it impossible to sin, but he does make it possible not to sin. As long as I live in childlikeness and obedience to Christ. These... these uh, events, one of which we're going to look at tonight, it is written for our instruction and it is a wise person who learns from the mistakes of others so that he doesn't make them himself. That's a wise person. So that through the perseverance of the, and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Let me say something about biblical hope. When I use the word hope, my hope is often rooted in wishful thinking, if not doubt. I was hoping that the Minnesota Vikings were going to win the NFC championship this year. Then we got thumped by Dallas at home. And my hope was disappointed. That's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is of another quality. Because the word hope speaks of assurance. In fact, it speaks in the Hebrew language of such assurance that it speaks of welcoming something or someone or something. So I live on the Bodensee or Lake Constance in southern Germany. And uh, our students and guests like to go down to the lake shore and get a good picture of the sunrise. And they set up their camera equipment while it's still dark. And while it's still dark, they hope that the sun's going to rise. I say, what do you mean they're hoping? Of course it's going to rise. That is biblical hope. You are as assured of something as you were that the sun was going to rise this morning. That's biblical hope. So these things are written so that you might be encouraged, so that we have hope this evening from this event in the life of Israel. I've outlined this chapter and the chapters that we're going to speak about this evening. I want to work through this uh, storyline, if you will. First of all, the consequences of sin. By the time we get to Joshua chapter 7, Israel had just gone through uh, and experienced this exhilarating victory at Jericho. Jericho was the gateway to Canaan. 
Jericho was a fortress. It was about nine uh, acres total land. It would have taken about 45 hours to walk around its circumference, just so you know what we're speaking about. The walls of this fortress were inverted. So they were built at an angle going inward. That's why they were so hard to scale. And if you could get Jer- if you could Jericho, uh, the land was open to you. And we read in the book of Hebrews chapter 11 that God brought down the walls of Jericho when Israel shouted in the world's eyes a food of faith. And God gave the victory. And we come to Joshua chapter 7 and Israel then is facing the next town. It was a little town and there were about 3,000 inhabitants It was significantly smaller than Jericho. Joshua had sent spies up there. They came back. They said, you don't need to take all the men of the war, just a a smaller amount of troops and go up there. They went up there and they fled in defeat. And not only that, but 36 men died. And we read of the consensus of this, starting in verse 1 of chapter 7, it says, But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, took some of the things under the ban. Therefore, the anger of the Lord turned or burned against the sons of Israel. Because they went up there and there was something desperately wrong in their midst. Man Achan had done the very thing that God said you should not do at Jericho. He said you're not to take anything as spoil from your, for yourselves. You're to destroy it all. And God instituted a principle that he did in the Old Testament. And he said the first things belong to me. And the reason why he did that was that he was testing their faith when he said, the first of the crops belong to me, the first harvest belongs to me. Why? Because they had to trust him for the second harvest. And he was educating their faith. And he said to them very clearly, he said, if you take the things under the ban as your own spoil this time, you're going to end up like I commanded you to do to them. In other words, you're going to be destroyed yourself. Well, this man took them and that led to the only defeat in the book of Joshua, the only defeat. And God spends chapters on it. This tells me that no measure of blessing or success in the Christian life guarantees future victory. As I said earlier, the Christian life is a step-by-step mission. And I can't lean on the past and assume victory in the future. It doesn't work that way. We need to humble ourselves so that we are not humiliated in defeat. If there's ever a time to humble ourselves, it's at the time of blessing. And we need to get down on our faces and say, Lord, we are your unworthy. And this is alone done to your glory and by your strength. But I cannot take any credit at all. God says that Israel acted faithfully. That is, they stopped acting in faith. And there was something in the heart of this man, Achan, that told him, 
I would be better off taking my debt into my own hands and I would be better off taking the sum of the goods right now because I'm not sure if there's going to be a second battle that we're going to win and that I'm going to have access to them, so I'm going to take it now. And so he hid those things under his tent. Very simply, he acted in lust and not trust. Within the context of the testing of our faith, in James chapter 1 and verse 16, God's word says, do not be deceived, my brethren. Every good thing and every perfect gift is from above, coming to the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In other words, God is not fickle. He does not play games. And that word is contained in the passage which deals with testing of our faith. Because when our faith is being tested, we are tempted to think, man, does God have my, my best interest in mind? Is he putting unreasonable demands on me? I better into my own hands. I better be looking out for number one. That's easy to do within the context of sometimes having to wait for God's best. And, and God's word reminds us, don't be deceived. Every good gift comes down from the Father of lights whose character is impeccable. And I might go through a period of time when he tests my, but he has my highest interest in mind. You know, this has been a lie of the devil for a long, long time. Do you remember the first words out of his mouth in Genesis chapter 3? He comes up and he speaks to Eve and he says, as God said... You cannot eat from any tree of the garden? No, that's not what God said. God said, you may eat from every tree, just not one. And he cast a shadow on the character of God in the mind of Eve and got her to believe that God did not have her best in mind and she had better take things into her own hands and furthermore, she believed that you can sin and pay no consequence for it. And so she went ahead and you and I live in the consequences of that till this day. But the tactic of the devil is the same, to believe God cannot be trusted. His demands are unreasonable. And you better take care of number one right now because you can't trust him. In Psalm 19 and verse 30, scripture says something very interesting. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not for me. Psalm 19 and verse 13. Keep your servant from presumptuous sins. To be presumptuous is to be uh, recklessly aggressive. It means to take matters into your own hands. It means to pick the fruit before it's ripe. And if I'm going to make a mistake, it's usually because Peter Reed rushes into something too soon instead of waiting for God to provide. And I need to be careful that I do not create an Ishmael while I am waiting for Isaac. That's easiest to do. I just take matters into my own hands, usually out of fear, usually out of doubt. 
and I believe the lie that I'm going to be better off doing so. And that may have been very much the things that were going on in the heart of this man, Achan, when he took a bar of gold, when he took a piece of clothing, and he hid him under his tent. And then they went into the next battle. And 36 men died. And I'm sure when they heard that, his heart melted. Well, let's look at the cause. In verses 10 to 13, Joshua comes before the Lord. He comes with the elders. They get on their face. Uh, They put on sackcloth and ashes. And Joshua actually says in this passage, he says, why on earth did we ever come to Canaan? Lord, why did you ever get us into this? Amazing how much we can open our mouths and slander the character of God and the whole time I'm at fault. So why not just blame him? And what happened was, did what I do, he was more concerned about the consequences of the sin and the lack of blessing and their defeat than the fact that Israel had sinned. And God God is always concerned with the root, and that is sin. And there's times when I might be praying, studying, seeking counsel, and I'm dealing with secondary issues. I'm wasting my time and God's because there's a point in my life that needs to be cleaned up by a simple act of repentance. Well, let's listen to what God said when Joshua comes, falls on his face before the Lord, and we hear the Lord speak to him in verse 10. So the Lord said to Joshua, rise up. Why is it that you've fallen on your face? Israel has sinned and transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them, and they have even taken some of the things under the ban and have stolen and deceived. Moreover, they've also put them among their own things. Therefore, the sons of Israel cannot stand their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies, for they have become accursed, and I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst. So rise up, consecrate the people, and say, consecrate yours tomorrow, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, there are things under the ban in your midst, O Israel, and you cannot stand before your enemies until you have removed the things from under the ban which are in your midst. You cannot stand before your enemies until this thing gets cleared up. And sometimes defeat in my life in a multitude of areas very simply has to do with one thing that's hidden under my tent that nobody knows about but me and the Lord Jesus. It's interesting that God comes and over again, he says, they have done this, they have done this, they have done this. I'm saying to myself, wait a minute, it was Achan. Why are you saying They. We live a hyper-individualistic society, also in the church. It's about me and Jesus. It's about us and Jesus. And if I knew 
your walk in the Lord was going to have a direct effect on my private life, would I be interested in your maturing process in the Lord? You better believe I would. My walk with Christ is a deeply personal matter, but it's never just a problem. Scripture says that we are members of one another. We're better together. And that is the beauty of the body of Christ. And what happened here, one man sinned and paid the consequences. And as much as we would not like to believe that, because we are steeped in individualism, the same thing holds today. Achan's heart melted. Can you imagine that when he hears word that 36 men died? And it was his felt. The weight of that must have been. And here we have one more time in the scriptures. A very simple principle. The harvest is always. Is always bigger One deed of disobedience. That's what was sown. And the harvest of that had far-reaching consequences. I need to understand that my sin as an individual can have a ripple effect on those closest to me. I commit the sin and others live with the consequences. And I usually don't think about sinning because sinning sinning is a totally selfish act. It costs God so much to forgive sin because it costs us so much to commit it. It always comes with a price. Sin will take you further than you want to go. Sin will leave you longer than you want to stay. And sin will cost you more than you want to pay. It always comes with a price. I don't know if you've ever thought about it in this terms, but the Spirit of God is never involved in an act of sin in my life. I do it totally in my own energy. And that is a self-destructive path. Spirit of God. And so are we. When that happens, what David in this period in his life applied to Achan at this point in his life, as has applied to Peter Reed's life when I've experienced the same thing. And David wrote about it in 32 and verse 2. In Psalm 32 and verse 2. He said, how blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept out my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me and my vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. So I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found, surely in a flood of great waters, reach him. 
When, the, when we live in unconfessed sin, the spirit is quenched, the spirit is grieved. He remains present, but he is powerless in me. It is exhausting to live in sin, physically, psychologically. James put it this way. He said in James chapter 4 and verse 4, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell within us. But God gives a greater grace. Praise him. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Where that verse says, the Spirit of God jealously desires... The Spirit of God is not jealous of me as if I had something he didn't. He is jealous of me. Because the love of God is so pure, so strong, that it moves him to a righteous jealousy in my life. If I go back uh, and, and meet Gabi engagement this weekend, and I walk into our home, or our host's home, and I say, Shots, I'm home, and uh, there's no answer. I'm walking around the house, around the property, saying, Gabby, you know, I'm home, and there's no answer. And I open the door to our bedroom, and I find her in bed with another man. My response is not, oh, sorry to interrupt you. I'll I'll just go wait. If that was my response, you would have a good reason to doubt my love for my wife. God is no different. He loves me with a love which is so intense, it moves him to jealousy. So is he going to make us aware of these things? Is he going to lay his hand heavy on my life? Yes, he will, because his love is pure and perfect and eternal. And he cannot look at me entertaining another lover in my heart and not be grieved. He is a jealous God. Well, we move on to the cure in verses 25 and 26. God says, what I want you to do is I want you to cast lots among all the tribes. And they cast lots, the tribe of Judah, and then all of the family of Achan are chosen. Do you know what? God knows where the problem lies. Nobody else may know, but he knows what's under my tent. And lo and behold, this lot falls to Achan and his family. God knew exactly where the, prob- where the problem was. And then we read in verse 25, Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. 
And all Israel stoned them with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones, and they raised over him a great heap of stones that stands there to this day, and the Lord brought his fierce anger against them. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Achor to this day. The word Achor means trouble. I've gotten into trouble as a child of God. My life is in overtime. I understand that. And there was a valley of trouble here. And that's where you need to get something right. The defeat was not their problem. It was hidden sin that was their problem. I had something under his tent. And scripture says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep and let your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he'll exalt you. When I've lectured on this passage, students come up to me, some of them angry about the passage. And they said, why did Achan and the whole family have to die like he did? Let me explain a few things about that. God had said very clearly before the battle of Jericho, if anything, as spoil from yourselves, it's going to happen to you what you're going to do to the inhabitants of Jericho. And so the faithfulness of God moved him to command the Israelites to stone this man and his family. If he had not commanded that, God could not be trusted. He is just following through on his word. The fact that we are shocked at this event is indicative of the sorry lack of fear in our hearts before a holy God. Why don't we react to the death of Christ that way? That's what Christ faced, and we sing about it and repeat it so glibly. Do we get angry that he had to die in my place? Do we mourn the fact that, in, that he is the one who is sin, sinless and perfect, was treated in that way when I deserved that? This event teaches us that our choices have consequences. This, this teaches us that it could well have been that the other family members knew all along and didn't say anything. And their silence made them guilty. And you can look in the scriptures and God often had a habit of treating offense with a certain amount of clarity. To make a point, don't mess with me. There's an illustrate, this event also illustrations, it's something in my life and yours that we need to come to terms with. It says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 3, God condemns sin in the flesh. God loves the sin, loves to forgive sins, but he condemns 
the disposition of sin. And the disposition of sin is an attitude of independence that says, I'm going to do this. The only thing that God has for that attitude of heart in Peter Reed is condemnation. He operates in my life according to my childlike trust in him. And that's why I need to come and mourn this and come to a place of new dependence upon him. The Spirit of God will still be present, powerless, and I will not enjoy victory until this matter is cleaned up. There is a, a lovely Christian family in the neighborhood where I live. And uh, years ago, when I went on staff at Bodensdorf, we had a wood-burning furnace in our dormitory. And it was my job not only to fill that furnace five times a day, but it was my job to go out into the forest with some of our students or guests and get of wood to feed this furnace. And there's a lovely family in our neighborhood that has a carpentry shop, and they lent me a small... A truck one Saturday morning to go get the wood. We got the wood, and trying to be a good neighbor in return, I went to the gas station and filled this truck full. I got into the driver's seat and turned the key, and the engine kind of groaned a little bit, but it didn't turn. And I walked to my neighbor's house, and I said, there's something wrong with your truck. He walked with me to the gas station. He took one look and asked me one very simple question. What did you fill the tank with? I said, with gasoline to the top. He said, that's a diesel engine. You make that mistake once in the neighborhood. We can laugh about it. I wasn't laughing then. That stupid diesel engine wouldn't tolerate gas. Stupid engine. (laughs) Do you know there is something called a righteous intolerance that is perfectly acceptable in medical fields, in the field of engineering, in the fields of finance? There's a righteous intolerance in the kingdom of God as well. And it's contained in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. He can't change. And the character of God is perfect, and he can make no compromise with my sin. If he would, we shouldn't trust him. But there is a righteous intolerance in the kingdom of God that is perfectly acceptable, and we operate along those lines in fields in which we're involved even in this room this evening. But when it comes to the things of God, we're supposed to tolerate all kinds of nonsense and unrighteousness in the name of Jesus. Well, they had to get it right, and they did. And we go to Joshua chapter 8, starting verse 1. And here's the concept. I love the first word in my translation. In Joshua chapter 8 and verse 1, it says, now. 
There's no such thing as gradual forgiveness in the kingdom. Yeah, there might be gradual recovery from sin that we commit. I understand that. But it said, now the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear or be dismayed. Take all the people of war, rise and go up to Ai. See, I've given it into your hand, the king of Ahab, Ai, his people, his city and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king just as you did to Jericho and its king. You shall take only its sports cattle as plunder for yourselves. God said, not at Jericho, because I'm instituting the principle of the fruits, first fruits. That belongs to me. Now the second time, it belongs to you. Because it's going to belong to you on the basis of trust and not lust. And the inflow of God's resources and the assurance of victory was immediate after they got this right. And they go on to Ai and they defeat it and they gather the plunder for themselves. And God gave them good things and they enjoyed victory. At the very end of that, of the commitment in chapter 8, in verses 30 and through 35, And what it says there that God, Joshua gathered all the people and he read the law of Moses to them. And they committed themselves because they'd learned a tough lesson. Do you know it says in Psalm 130 and verse 4, but there is forgiveness with you that you might be feared. Forgiveness is to provide an end to sin, not not another opportunity to commit the same sin. God forgives and he also disciplines like a good father would to save us from that self-destructive lifestyle. And so there's something to be learned from it. And if I get out of the next slide, this place was called the Valley of Achor or the Valley of Trouble. And perhaps somebody is finding themselves in that valley. I trust that this chapter provides you encouragement and hope. Many years later, God spoke to his people through the prophet Hosea. And he said, therefore, behold, I will allure her, speaking of Israel, Bring her into the wilderness and speak kindly to her. Then I will give her her vineyard and the valley of Achor as the door of hope. And she will sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. In John chapter 10, Jesus said, I'm the door. I'm the door in your valley of hope, or a valley of trouble. And you can move on. And I can come back to him and humble myself before him. I can confess sin. I can be cleansed from it. I can repent from that. I can relearn the fear. And the Lord would be delighted to move forward. And he provides a door of hope. Again, somebody seated here this evening might need that door of hope.
In Isaiah chapter 43 and verses one and two, God said to his people, do not fear for I've redeemed you. I've called you by name and you're mine. Pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overthrow you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched and the flame will not burn you. So the waters and the river and the fire are still there But they won't hurt us, God says. Because if you come to me with a repentant, humble heart, in the valley of Achor, your valley of trouble, there's hope. Humanly speaking, there would be reason to believe, why would God want to move forward with me? And sometimes it's easy to believe of the accuser of the brethren from Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10, who likes to accuse them before God. Yes, there are consequences to forgiven sin, but it is a lot. God leaves us there alone. He's there with us. And sometimes the only way forward is the way through. With Jesus. The flame and the flood are still there, but so is He. Joshua said in Joshua 7 and verse 9, Lord, what are you going to do for your great? Do you know there's something much, much greater at stake than my life? that is a more solid ground upon which I might trust for a future. And that's the reputation of Jesus in my life. Does he want to move forward? You better believe he does. Why? Because his glory is at stake and he is jealous about his glory in my life. Does he move forward? Absolutely. Does he do that cheaply? No, he does it thoroughly. You see, failure doesn't have to be final. And my future is more important than my past. And God moved his people forward. And the whole of chapter 8 is an account of victory. You can Google this. I brought the quote on the last PowerPoint this evening. In the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City, the last person to enter into the stadium, which is tradition at the Olympics, that you, you, you finish the, the marathon in the stadium and you take one lap and go through the finish line, the guy last was a guy from Tanzania. You can watch amateur black and white film of this. And he hobbles into the stadium because he had injured himself. And what you see is a dark stadium. Some of the lights had been turned off. The majority of the fans were gone. There were some reporters kind of wandering around in the field in the middle. And this lone runner comes in, hobbles to the, to the stadium, and then goes through the finish line. And a reporter came up to him afterwards and he asked him this question. He said, why did you even finish the race? And this young man said, my country did not send me 5,000 miles to start a race, but to finish one. 
We're called to finish. We're called to finish. Yes, Peter Reed might go through the finish line limping. But we're called to finish. What I learned from this whole event is very simply this. The sweetness of innocence is infinitely greater than the sweetness of forgiveness. Students come to me at Bible school and they say, Peter, I can't give my testimony because I don't have a crash and burn story. I say, praise God, you don't have one. Go up and give your testimony because somebody needs to hear that. Praise God that you have no crash and burn story to tell because I don't know how many students have come into my office with one wish. If I could only turn back the hands of time so that I never did that. The sweetness of innocence is infinitely greater than the sweetness of forgiveness. A man by the name of G.D. Watson was a pastor out on the West Coast beginning of the 19th or 20th century. And I read this when I was in college and I had to find out where it was. And as we close this evening before I pray, let's just listen to this and speak to the Lord in our hearts. The title is May, but you cannot. If God has called you to be really like Jesus in all your spirit, he will draw you into a life of crucifixion and humility and such demands of obedience that he will not allow you to follow other Christians. And in many ways, he will seem to let other good people do things which he will not let you do. Others can brag on themselves, on their work, on their successes, but the Holy Spirit will not allow you to do any such thing. And if you begin it, he will lead you into some deep mortification that will make you despise yourself and all your good works. The Lord may let others be honored and put and keep you hid away in obscurity because he wants to produce some choice fragrance fruit for his coming glory that can only be produced in the shade. God will let others be great but keep you small. Others do work for him and get the credit for it. But he will make you work and toil on without knowing how much you're doing. And then to make your work still more precious, he will let others get the credit for the work which you have done. And this will make it ten times greater when Jesus comes. The Holy Spirit will put a strict watch on you with a jealous love. And he will rebuke you for little words and feelings or for wasting your time, which other Christians are distressed over. So make up your mind that God is an infinite sovereign and has, to do, has the right to do as he pleases with his own. And he will not explain to you a thousand things which may puzzle your reason in his dealings with you. God will take you at your word, and if you absolutely sell yourself to be his slave, he will wrap you up in a jealous love. And let other people say and do many things that you cannot do or say. So settle it for that you're to deal directly with the Holy Spirit and that he is to have the privilege of tying your tongue or chaining your hand or closing your eyes in ways that others are not dealt with. Now when you are so possessed with the living that you are in your secret heart, pleased and delighted over this peculiar, personal, private jealous guardianship and management of the Holy Spirit over your life. 
you will have found the vessel of heaven. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you that we have a door of hope in the valley of trouble. I want to thank you that you have a vested interest in us moving forward because your glory is at stake in our lives. I want to thank you that you don't compromise with my sin and you prove yourself in that way to be trustworthy. And Lord, I simply pray that your word would bear fruit in instructing, convicting, encouraging, empowering. And Lord Jesus, may you have the place of in the tiniest details of our lives for your own glory's sake. Amen.